Welcome back to the talk show. It's now late Monday night. In this episode, I talked about the death of the process. It's officially over. How did it fail? I break it all down. I also talked about the Brooklyn Nets and Kevin Durant, his crazy series, and I previewed the conference finals and what might end up being my dream scenario of Suns and Hawks in the NBA finals and how we can get there. What's the path? I also talked about Jacob deGrom. I recorded while I was watching the Mets game. So I talked a bit about Jacob deGrom and what makes him so special. So all that and much, much more coming up next on the talk show. Welcome back to the talk show episode 40, the 40th episode of the talk show. And I've been piling on the podcast recently, um, trying to get my voice out there. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot to talk about. So I'm just trying to get out there and speak about everything as it's happening, um, trying a little something different. Uh, I know people don't want to necessarily have time to hear a full podcast every day or something like that. Um, but with sports, because it's something that's always moving, it's something that I'm trying, just trying a bunch of different things. Like I said, I'll take you guys along on this process. If you've been riding with me and just listening every time, um, you know, it's a process, you know, I'm learning, I'm part of that. So it's definitely, uh, a fun experience for me. So this is something new that I'm trying. Um, I'm going to talk about mostly the NBA today. I just do want to mention I am watching Jacob deGrom right now. It's 5.37 p.m. Eastern time. The game started at 5 o'clock. The Mets are playing Jacob deGrom once every five days. The Mets are must-watch TV. It's actually a seven-inning game because of the doubleheader. So we'll see. You're going to be monitoring his health also because he's been having a tough time staying on the field for full games. And then he comes back every fifth day anyway to pitch. So there's definitely going to be something to monitor there. Um, So I'll be updating you throughout the podcast, really just updating myself because um, obviously by the time this podcast is posted, the game might be over or you'll have a full update on his stats. So far, he's got two innings, hasn't given allowed, hasn't allowed a base runner, but he has four strikeouts. So, so far, six batters, six of them struck, four of them struck out, sorry, and none of them have reached base. Let's talk NBA, though, because it's been a crazy weekend for the NBA, crazy weekend in basketball with the playoffs, and a lot has happened since the last time I talked on Thursday night, and I'm not going to just come on here and not talk about that. So that's obviously the biggest story. So let's get right into it. And the first story I want to talk about is kind of a transparency thing. I talked on this podcast probably a few months ago at the beginning of the NBA season. And then again, recently when I was talking about the Nets, maybe a couple weeks ago, um, that there's no transparency in the NBA that oftentimes the team that is the favorite or the team that you expect to win ultimately wins. And while I don't think that that's necessarily a terrible thing, I think sometimes people talk about, Oh, the right team won, the team that deserved to win won. I think there's something to be said about an underdog, a team that rallies together, a team that plays hard, a team that's not just a bunch of group of individuals. And we'll talk about that a little bit later coming together and being the most talented team winning. There's something to a fun team going on a run, a young team, whoever it is. And if you look at the four teams that remain in this playoffs, those are not necessarily the favorites that you would have thought would be here at this point. You have the Bucks, you have the Hawks, you have the Clippers and you have the Suns. Those teams, none of them have won an NBA title since 1971. So you talk about those teams. That's really fun. You look at something like the NFL, which is obviously really fun. um, And the NFL playoffs is 
any given Sunday, something can happen. You know, Joe Flacco and the crazy run he went on with the Ravens. No one will say Joe Flacco is one of the great quarterbacks, but what he did on that run was incredible. You talk about Eli Manning and that Giants defense going in there and beating the 18-0 New England Patriots. Again, maybe the right team didn't win. The team that was supposed to win the title didn't win. But they had to get beat. That's what happens. You have to play the games. That's why you play the games. And if you know if everything is just a simulator and what's supposed to happen happens, then it's kind of dumb. You see in hockey, you get into some of these runs. Like you look at the Islanders right now. Playoff runs like that where a goalie gets hot or a team gets hot and you just watch them together, band together and get hot is awesome. That's a great thing. So I think that's great for sports. I think that's really great for, you know, basketball that we have these four teams remaining, these teams that aren't necessarily the favorites to win a title coming into the year or the most talented teams. But these have been teams that are doing something incredible and teams that want to discredit them and say, well, the Lakers were hurt and the Nets were hurt and all this. And it was a season after a pandemic. It was a short off season. Quick update on the Mets game. They just intentionally walked the number eight hitter to face Jacob deGrom. So the Mets have a one nothing lead, bottom of the second, runner on first and second. deGrom coming to the plate, getting a standing ovation. He's been good in these spots, RBI situation with two outs. So we'll see what happens. Um, but what I was saying was that in the NBA, the fact that you have players here and he's looking to bunt, and maybe there's one out. I'm not sure. All right. The fact that in the NBA, you have these players that have come together as teams and are trying to win ball games as a team is much more impressive than those individual performances. And you know what? If people want to say, well, it's not real, it's not legit, it's the most legit to me. I think this is better than any NBA playoffs we've had in a long time. And it's different than last year. Yeah, last year you could say it was the bubble. That was totally different. But this year is not the bubble. This year you had a full season. You had a chance to play together. If the Nets would have played more games together, and I know some of the guys were hurt, but I don't know how injured they were. I know LeBron wanted to rest a little bit. But at the end of the day, that's what happens when you don't play enough games during the regular season. Whatever excuse you want to give it, it's going to be tougher to band together in the postseason. And these teams that have been able to lock in and really play in the postseason, you got to give them credit. So I give credit to those four teams. And one of the four teams, the first team that has always come up short in the past in the playoffs is the Clippers. And they've been down and out in this postseason already twice. If you look after they were down 2-0 against the Mavericks, everyone counted them out, myself included. Everyone was already talking about, all right, what's going to happen next season? Um, DeGrom is going to fly out to end the inning. So he does not come through there. But you talk about them in that spot with the Clippers, or you talk about what happened when they were tied 2-2, and then Kawhi Leonard goes down, and it's like, oh, well, they're not going to come back and beat the Jazz. Paul George has the Paul George game, and then the Terrence Mann game. What's interesting about that team is two things. One, I talked about Ty Lue. Maybe he's not a great coach, and I talked about, look, you you downgraded from Ty Lue. What'd you expect? You had, you know, Doc Rivers. Now you have Ty Lue. Well, that narrative has totally flipped, and we'll get to the Doc Rivers side of that in a minute. But Ty Lue, being able to keep this team together and keep this team locked in, that's an incredible job by him and the different adjustments he made and the role players that I talked about in the last episode that were relying on guys like Terrence Mann and Marcus Morris and Reggie Jackson. Those guys came through in the second half of game six. Terrence Mann had 25 points and Reggie Jackson had 24. That's just crazy. But sometimes that happens. Guys can get hot in the NBA. It doesn't matter. The way the NBA is played today, 
any guy can get a heat check and go nuts for a quarter and a half, two quarters. And I know the Jazz weren't so healthy, the Jazz, and, you know, Rudy Gobert was exposed a lot in that game. Donovan Mitchell's still awesome. I think he was injured and he was playing through and he actually performed great. But you got to give credit to the Clippers. You got to give credit to Ty Lue. Now, obviously, Saturday night was game seven in Brooklyn. KD tried to carry this team both in games five and game seven. He played every minute of those two games. It just goes to show you can't really give up games in the NBA. Game six, they kind of just were like, all right, we're going to try and win this one, but we're not going to try as hard to win it. And then Brooklyn ultimately loses that game. Now, every time they came close, Chris Middleton just absolutely went nuts. Chris Middleton does not get enough credit for what he did in game six in keeping the Bucs season alive. The reason the Bucs beat the Nets in game seven and had an opportunity to play a game seven was because of Chris Middleton. Chris Middleton had 38 points on 16 shot attempts. He also had 10 rebounds, five assists, five steals, didn't have a foul, didn't turn the ball over. I mean, that's just insane. That game, people should be talking about it the way they're talking about Terrence Mann and more. I mean, maybe you expected a little bit more from Chris Middleton, but this team offensively goes as far as Chris Middleton goes. And it wasn't just that Chris Middleton was so good in that game and was so efficient. It was every time the Nets went on a run to make the game close, Chris Middleton was right there with an answer. So that's game six. Then you go to game seven and you have KD with another all-time game. If you think he was any less in that game, you're crazy. The KD slander is nuts after that game because if you think about it, KD tried to deliver the game-winning shot. He knew he had nothing left in him. They called a three-point attempt for him on the last play of regulation. And if his foot is a quarter of an inch shorter, then no one's talking about, oh, KD didn't pull through an OT, KD this, KD that. Everyone's talking about, oh my God, Kevin Durant just hit one of the craziest shots in NBA history, one of the most clutch shots in NBA history. And it won them a series. And he really did. He hit that shot, only it sent them to overtime because his foot was a little bit too long. So to say, oh, well, KD came back. He was 0 for 2 in the overtime. KD was gassed in that overtime. And I think it's weird. It's kind of like, um, I think the knockout punch that came. And I always talked about how Giannis should have been defending Durant on all those possessions, especially that last possession. He's just a little bit taller, just a little tougher for Durant to get the shot up over him. But, you know, when Giannis is a guy who has to work harder for his buckets, harder on the offensive side to get points because he's not a guy who can just shoot. So it would really knock him out. It would really make him a lot more tired to have to play defense on a guy like Kevin Durant every possession. So the interesting thing is when Giannis went at KD in that overtime and he is backing him down in the post and he turns around and gets that little jump hook over him and it rattles around, hits every part of the rim, that could have been the knockout punch. Those two shots that Durant took after that possession, Durant was short on those shots, meaning he was gassed. Giannis and his body slamming into you three times as he's backing you down. It's kind of like a boxer. When you get your body into them, when you start jabbing guy a few times, then you could deliver the knockout punch. And that was the knockout punch to Durant. He had nothing left in him at that point, And his last two shots were short and they ended up losing the series and people like to knock Durant, but that's crazy. The way I see it is Milwaukee survived. Milwaukee didn't necessarily win that game. Um, and there's so many levels to that. And we'll talk about that. We'll talk a little later when we preview the next series. But 
if you're a Bucks fan, Budenholzer keeps his job. That's the worst thing that happened for this team. Going forward, they have Mike Budenholzer, who just didn't make adjustments in that game. Drew Holiday, that's one of the worst trades. I, I understand what they did, but I, I they needed someone, but I don't think Drew Holiday was the answer. And I said this at the time. I'm not Johnny come lately on this. I said Drew Holiday, he's not the answer. You need someone to run the offense. Giannis running the offense is not the answer. Chris Middleton can run the offense at times, but he's not the answer either. And that trade and Budenholzer and all that, I don't see them winning the next series, but we'll get to that a little bit later. As far as Brooklyn and the next steps for them, this just gives them more incentive. Durant's like, hey, two guys were out. I still, I was a quarter of an inch away from winning this series. Um, Let's just run it back. There's no reason for them not to. The only interesting piece is the Kyrie Irving piece. We'll see what he decides to do. I think Kyrie not playing and seemingly disinterested in game seven, just kind of standing there on the sideline, looking a little disinterested, kind of validates everything we've seen from Kyrie all year. Kyrie Irving was showing up, not showing up. He didn't really seem to care. And there seemed to have been a mental thing where he obviously is struggling with some mental or emotional issue that's outside of the game of basketball. But if he would have showed up in a playoff series and he's like, oh, now I'm ready to go. Now I'm locked in. It's kind of like, well, what happened to your mental, emotional issue? It turns out you just didn't want to play because the games didn't mean anything to you. But now that the games are important, you want to play. The fact that he didn't play in this series and didn't really seem to care kind of goes to show you that, yeah, the whole thing was not fake. He really has just something and he doesn't really care about basketball. It's just not that important to him. So it kind of validates Kyrie. So that's an interesting point. But if you can get him to buy in, and even if you don't have Kyrie, if you have Harden, if Harden can go to the gym for a week and stop eating like a pig and Durant comes back and he looks as good as Durant looked this year, which is, again, I am astonished by how good he's looked coming off the injury. Then you are, again, the favorites to win the title again next year. So if you're the Nets, run it back. I mean, think about the different things that could have gone down this series. Uh, we're not expecting um, Spencer Didwitty's comeback, but he didn't play at all this year. Uh, He's expected to turn down an extension from the Nets and try and get a big free agent contract. But Joe Harris hits one or two threes in that game, especially the wide open three. When it's 111-109, the Nets are leading. Joe Harris had a wide open three. If he hits that three, the series is over. They win. But he misses that three. A wide open shot. And then... Giannis comes back down, backs down Durant, makes it 111-111, then the rest is history. We know what happened. The fact that you're one Joe Harris wide open three away from probably winning that series just tells you you're this close. You were this hurt. All this went, didn't go your way. We obviously know how little the team played together. Run it back next year. You'll be fine. Um, Quick update on Jacob deGrom. He had an 0-2 count on the pitcher, and then he just through three sliders that missed up in the zone above the zone and he does not look comfortable on the mound so that's something to look at again the injuries are the only thing degrom has been dominant he's gotten the first eight batters out struck out four of them um he's throwing one-on-one but the thing we have to watch with jacob degrom has always been the injury this year so that continues let's talk about the hawks and the Sixers. And let's start with the Sixers. 
the big story you're going to hear about from the Sixers camp and from social media and everyone talking about is Ben Simmons, who obviously gives up the open dunk at the end of the game there, passes it off for a free throw, and then Embiid totally calls him out and all that. And we'll get to that in a second. Um, and he totally has just disappeared in this playoff series and really in this playoffs completely. What he shoot 26% from the free throw line. He looks broken. I don't like to say that, but he looks broken as a professional athlete, as a basketball player out there. So the biggest story is Ben Simmons, and that's true. And who is he? Who is he as a player? And I've talked about this for a while, that he's not a point guard. He's not an effective player in today's NBA. He's good in transition. I thought during the regular season, they did a good job getting him out in transition. But in the playoffs where you have to get stops in order to get in transition, and if you're not getting stops, or even if you know, you're getting stops, but you're not able to run off of it, and you're trying to run a half-court offense, what player is he for you? And in the end of games and big games, especially in the playoffs, you're not going to be getting out and running as much as you are. Um, Jacob DeGrom, by the way, just came back and struck out Ronald Acuna. So he seems fine for now. Uh, but what are the trade possibilities now? Who knows? I think they missed a huge opportunity. They could have traded Ben Simmons for James Harden, obviously Harden was hurt and it didn't go great in Brooklyn. He looked fatter than ever and all that, but you still wouldn't have the issue now. James Harden was the answer for you. For Daryl Morey, a guy who's been with Harden his whole life, maybe he didn't just want to get Harden because that's the guy he had been with in Houston for so long and he decided he wanted to go a different direction, but that's a fail. You had an opportunity to do that. Houston would have taken him in a second. That's better than anything Brooklyn offered. And obviously I've talked about Denver and them missing their opportunity and they got swept. And I'm not going to talk about their series because that was about a month ago. It feels like um, when they got swept by the Suns. but you had an opportunity to trade Ben Simmons for James Harden and you didn't. And now what are the trade possibilities? People are bringing up Portland, but if you're Portland, do you trade for Ben Simmons? Do you trade CJ McCollum for Ben Simmons? Like if you're if you think you're getting Dame Lillard for Ben Simmons, that's not happening. You get Dame Lillard for Ben Simmons and a bunch of picks probably. And now it's time to look at the process. The process is over. That's it. Back in like the 2012-2013 time it was when the Philadelphia 76ers started the trust the process movement. And I think it was a marketing thing as much as anything, because how are you going to sell tickets to a fan base when you're losing every single game almost intentionally for a six year stretch? But they did it. They lost all those games and they said, well, the light's coming at the end of the tunnel. It's going to be these guys. It's going to be these guys. And Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid were the answer to the process. And they lost. And they're probably never going to play a game together again. They couldn't get out of the second round in the years they were in the playoffs together. What does that tell you? I think the process failed. And the process failed for a bunch of reasons. But I talk about this all the time. The process is not the right way to build a team. The way you build a team is by building culture. By getting people to buy in. By people getting people who have a winning mentality. I talk about this with the Knicks. I talk about this with the Jets. I'm a fan of both of those teams. I think what the Knicks did this season is more important than any process. The Celtics, when they had the years with Isaiah Thomas and when he was carrying them to playoff games, and the Nets, what they did with Joe Harris and Spencer Dinwiddie and all those guys, that is more important. Building a culture, building 
a winning environment, building up young prospects is more important than losing games so you can get a, a bunch of number one draft picks. Look at the Hawks. Those were a bunch of guys who were gamers. Even Joel Embiid, who's obviously a great player. He's a max type player. He's a superstar type player. He's a player who has the talent and the capabilities and the skill to be one of the best players in the league and definitely easily one of the best players on a championship team, the best player on a championship team. He doesn't have the heart. He doesn't have the mental toughness. He does. He he comes from a loser franchise. We saw a bunch of times they had opportunities. They lose the game, obviously, to Kawhi. That was their best chance when they had Jimmy Butler on that team. But we've seen Embiid be out of shape and then lose series because of that. And this, this series, again, you see it. Ben Simmons is mentally weak. He gives up the wide open dunk because he's scared to take the free throws. Meanwhile, on the other side of the floor, Trey Young was four for 22 shooting, but he pulls up from 30 feet to hit a three to make it a six point game. And that was that whole swing. That's a tale of two different guys and where they're at mentally. Guys like John Collins, guys like Kevin Herter, who pulled through in this game for the Hawks in a huge way. That's a mental thing. And then there's the draft picks themselves. And you look at the picks that the Sixers made since 2013. And you want to know why the process failed? You missed on five out of those six picks. They had six picks in the top 11 of those drafts. And two of them were third overall. Two of them were first overall. And then there was a 10 overall and an 11 overall since 2013. In 2013, they took Michael Carter Williams at 11 overall. In 2014, at three overall, they took Joel Embiid, and they obviously hit on that pick. And then they took Alfred Payton. Yeah, Alfred Payton, the guy all the Knicks fans wanted to bench this year. That Alfred Payton. In 2015, again, third overall, they took Jaleel Okafor. First of all, what was the plan there? You're going to play Jaleel Okafor and and. Joel Embiid at the same time, that was never going to happen. And of course, Joel Okafor never panned out for anyone. 2016, they have the first overall pick and they draft Ben Simmons. Now, you would have thought that worked out, but apparently not, right? And then 2017, they trade up from the three spot to take Markel Fultz first overall. He was the sure slam dunk first overall pick. And I know injuries played a part of this for a bunch of these guys. But it doesn't work. You're hanging your hat on luck of the draw, tanking and saying, oh, well, we might get this player or even a player like Mark L. Fultz, who was considered to be a sure thing or Ben Simmons, who was considered to be a sure thing. You just never know. You got to try and build a winning culture and build a championship mentality. And that's how you build a franchise. And if there isn't any evidence of it, this is the biggest evidence of it. They also traded away the rights to Mikel Bridges at some point throughout that process who is looking great now for Phoenix. And look at Atlanta. Look at the other side of this. They had no hype. They had no marketing trust the process. They tried to make the playoffs every year. They tried to play, stay competitive with you know, some interesting rosters that they threw out throughout the years. But they still drafted guys like Kevin Herter, John Collins, DeAndre Hunter, Cam Reddish, Okongwu, who was playing big minutes last night in a Game 7. That's huge. That's the type of players you want. Those are the type of mentalities, the type of mindsets you want. And you see, the Sixers never had that, and the Hawks did. 
And you're talking about in a game seven where your best player in Trey Young played very poorly by his standards. You're talking about Bogdan Bogdanovich is probably a little hurt. He only played 20 minutes in the game. And they still won. By the way, that trade for Bogdanovich, the way they pulled that off silently, that's a huge move that the Hawks made. People are shocked by the Hawks that they made it this far. And obviously, since the coaching change, they've come a long way and they have a chance to go to the finals. And that's a legitimate chance. But you look at the different moves they've made and how they've panned out. The Bucks couldn't make the Bogdanovich trade. And then what, a week later, the Hawks pulled it off. That's a huge move for them. That's a player who's been great for them all season and all postseason. All those little moves that they made have added up to this team and the team where they are right now. And that's why we're seeing what we're seeing out of them. So no one should be that shocked. Another point I want to talk about is Doc Rivers. And the question is, is Doc Rivers a bad coach? Is Doc Rivers not as great as we always give him credit for? About a week ago or two weeks ago, I came on here and I was talking about Ty Lu and how they obviously downgraded from coach. And maybe that's why they're down 2-0 in the series against the Mavericks. And obviously that's talking about the Clippers. But is Doc Rivers that great? Doc Rivers has one championship in Boston. Other than that, his teams have always come up short. And he keeps getting job after job after job. And we all talk about what a great coach he is. And I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I'm not going to pretend I'm an expert on judging coaches. But he doesn't seem all that great to me. I don't know. Just putting that out there. Another thing I always talk about, and this relates to the Sixers, and it relates to the Hawks is the idea of team versus individuals. We talked about this with the Nets and obviously we saw they lost, although the team of the Bucks, they more survived, but the individuals on the, on the Nets couldn't come together and win that game. The individuals, which are Joel Embiid bashing his own teammate after the game and blaming Ben Simmons on that loss. They asked him what the turning point was in that game. And he said, when we had a chance for a dunk and instead only got one made free throw, that's a direct shot at Ben Simmons. And that's how you know you won't see them play together again. Versus the Hawks and different guys stepping up and different guys making plays for them. It's huge. It's part of why I've loved this postseason. It's what I've talked about all year, me and my father. And generally in the NBA, the group of talented individuals win. But this year, we're seeing the teams win. We're seeing the teams that come together and play together win. You know, the Atlanta Hawks are the first team in this current format of the NBA playoffs to make the conference finals without an all-star on their team. And now you could look at me and say, well, Trey Young should be an all-star, but he wasn't at the point of the season when the all-stars were being named. He was not an all-star at that point. And he hadn't played like one either. And now they become the first team without an all-star to go to the Eastern Conference Finals. And we're one step closer to my Atlanta Phoenix Finals that I talked about, the Brady Mahomes scenario. I love that. Speaking of Phoenix, I want to talk about the CP3 effect. And we'll get to the rest of the Phoenix game one against the Clippers. 
But there's something interesting when you talk about the team and the individuals. And we've obviously seen the Clippers come together and rally since Kawhi has been out. And I don't think it's because Kawhi has been out by any stretch. Don't get me wrong. But Chris Paul was on FaceTime after that huge game one win. He's on FaceTime with the team celebrating as they're walking back. You see he's just as hyped up as they are with Devin Booker and all those guys on FaceTime with them as they're walking back into the locker room. Apparently, he was texting and calling his brother who was sitting right behind the Suns bench, telling them different adjustments to make, telling them plays. He was locked into that game like he was there. Meanwhile, a video came out of the game six, Terrence Mann game, and all of them celebrating, the Clippers celebrating in the locker room. And Kawhi Leonard is seen just sitting there on his phone in front of his locker in the corner, not really involved, not really celebrating with them. Now, I don't like to read too deeply into these things, but the Chris Paul effect, what's great about it, and if you want to talk about, well, one guy, one team's missing their great player, the other team's missing their great player. What's great about the Chris Paul effect is it's not just what he's been able to do off the courts, what he brought to what he's brought to this team off the court, what he's brought to this team as a mental standpoint, what he's brought to this team just teaching them the game and helping them band together like a team. That is the full Chris Paul effect where Kawhi Leonard, no one's arguing that he has that. So when you're missing Kawhi Leonard, you're really missing Kawhi Leonard. But if you're missing Chris Paul, maybe you could still get a great effect out of him just from him texting the guys or calling the guys or being able to talk to them on the sideline through his brother. That's what's so great. So if you want to talk about which one is the bigger disadvantage, I think it's clear that the bigger disadvantage is not having Kawhi and his dominance on the floor out there. So that's something to look at for the rest of this series. And I don't think it'll be a short series, although the Suns have won eight straight games in the playoffs and they've looked pretty dominant doing it. And a big reason for that is Devin Booker. Devin Booker is starting to look like Kobe Bryant. We talked about this probably over the last five years. Devin Booker and his game and that mid-range game that he has and those little fallaway jumpers that he has. It's very Kobe reminiscent. But this guy, he had one of the biggest rebounds in this game. He's making crazy passes at the end of the game. So you want to talk about Kobe and that kind of offensive style Kobe game when he was locked in in that zone at the end of the third quarter and beginning of the fourth quarter and Mike Breen was absolutely losing his mind. It was one of the most fun things to watch. But that's Kobe-esque. Only then he could run the offense like a point guard and pass and make those plays for everyone else. That's even greater than some of the things we saw Kobe do, if you could say that, at least for that one game. And if he could become that guy, I mean... That's just insane. And if they win a championship, no one would be surprised if he's playing like this. And especially if we know they're going to get Chris Paul back at some point, they're legitimately primed to win a championship. And I think everyone's going to go off and talk about how amazing it is. Chris Paul, this Chris Paul, that and the Chris Paul effect. And finally, he got the championship he deserved. And it's well-deserved. I think Chris Paul deserves all that talk. The last thing I'm going to talk about um, in the NBA is I'll give you a quick preview on the Bucks and the Hawks. Like I said earlier, I thought there were some adjustments that weren't made by the Bucks. I think the coaching is not great. I think the offense in the half court is really bad. It just does not run well. Drew Holiday is not the guy who should be running that offense. And honestly, the only way to get out and run 
is to get stops. And I don't know how successful they're going to be getting stops against Trey Young. The one thing I would watch out, Trey Young's a little guy. Trey Young might not be so energized anymore. He might be tired. He seemed to be tired in the last couple of games of that series. Now, they were able to beat the Sixers without Trey Young being himself. But that's something to look out to look out for. Drew Holiday, he's a great defender, but that's not the answer. Um, it's actually something funny they said on the Short Porch podcast, which is the Yankee podcast. Um, they talked about how if you could take back one moment, one big win, one big hit in Yankee history for to reverse any other moment in Yankee history, what would be the moment that you'd give back? And they said that they'd give back the Aaron Boone home run in 2003, A, because it galvanized the Red Sox to come back and win in 2004, but B, because because of that one home run, now we have Aaron Boone. We're stuck with him as our manager. It's kind of the same thing with Mike Budenholzer. If my if the Bucks lose that game, that game seven, if Kevin Durant's foot is a quarter of an inch shorter, Mike Budenholzer is not the coach of the Bucks today. So the fact that he's coaching the Bucks in this series, in this conference finals, is crazy to me. If you know the guy is not good enough, and obviously you can't fire him in the middle of the year, it would be too nuts, but the guy's obviously not good enough to be the head coach. I don't think he's going to be the guy who carries them to a championship. And yet you're keeping him out there. And so if you're the Hawks, you got to know that. And I think the Hawks are heavy favorites in this series, in my mind. They don't have the experience. They don't have the Giannis Antetokounmpo. But I think they're going to score enough points that the Bucs are not going to be able to keep up with them. One of the weird things, the Bucs, I think one of the best players on the team is Brooke Lopez. He could play inside out the way he could play inside. He plays with heart. We talk about all the time. We talk about those guys who have heart, those guys who are have the it factor. And I talked about how Joel Embiid didn't have it, but Trey Young did. One of those guys who has the it factor, and you saw it, was Brooke Lopez. And he can hit threes, and he can play inside, and he could get rebounds, and he could be blocking shots. <laughs> I don't understand how they're not utilizing him more. And there are so many different things that I just don't understand from Coach Boonholzer in that series. And it's just odd to me. It's really confusing. And I really think there's a heavy coaching advantage. There's a heavy advantage on the offensive side. The only way the Bucks can win this series is if they get stops and Trey Young is tired and they really figure out a way. Drew Holiday can shut him down or they can really make them have to work for their offense. But I do think that the Hawks should win this series and go to the NBA Finals as crazy as that is. All right, that's all for the NBA, and I'll be back talking about the NBA plenty. The last thing I want to talk about is Jacob deGrom and why I keep being so obsessed with Jacob deGrom. A quick update. He's been through four innings now. He has six strikeouts, hasn't given up a hit, and gave up one walk to the pitcher in that at-bat where he seemed to have gotten hurt after being ahead 0-2. He threw four straight pitches that were just not his best. Um, And he did look like he was laboring a little bit more in that fourth inning. A quick thought on Jacob deGrom. Maybe he should be a reliever because for three innings, he's dominant every time. Um, deGrom, what's one of the things that's most interesting about him is that he makes everything look so easy. And I don't know if the microphone's picking this up, but just start pouring. So um, (laughs) I hope you don't hear that too much. 
Jacob deGrom makes everything look so incredibly easy. That's part of what makes him so dominant. That's part of what makes him so fun to watch. Pitching is not an easy position, but he's throwing 101 miles an hour. It's gotten faster every year. And you think about since June of 2017, his ERA is like something like 1.8. And then he comes up there and he bats. This guy has, he's not a big ego. He's not a guy who talks a lot. He's playing in a big market in New York. And granted, it's the Mets and not the Yankees. But what's so special about him is his level of dominance is a level of dominance in professional sports we haven't seen in years. And so you, I always say you have to appreciate greatness when you see it. I talked about it with Kevin Durant. I talked about it with a bunch of different guys. I talked about it with Trey Young when I am appreciating the greatness that he showed, even though I don't like Trey Young. And he crushed my Knicks and he shushed us and, you know, did all those little things. He took a bow on, on the garden floor. I, I didn't like that. But you got to appreciate the greatness. DeGrom's the same thing. So even if you're not a baseball player, go watch Jacob DeGrom pitch. He makes it look like it's incredibly easy. He's throwing faster than he's ever thrown in his career at this point in his career. He's doing things we've just never seen from anyone ever. And that's what's so impressive about it. All right. I'm going to go watch the rest of this game. I'm going to go watch some NBA and get ready for the next couple of series. I'll be back soon. I don't know when, but until then, see ya. Best nights of my life You got the light that always shines I miss the way that you move and the way I get high When you take me to your eyes Like I'm standing in the sky I see your subway cars and your old graffiti I breathe your air when I land in another city I'll be that one that's got you printed on my bones Yeah, you're all I know Everywhere I go, oh, oh, I ain't changed it oh, 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 Always on my road, I'm still New York You're the only oh, 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 that I'll ever know oh, oh, My concrete walls, I'm still New York Drive down Riverside See the birds flying on the high line With the sidewalks burning We pray for rain in July I want the Yankees 99 yeah. And the Knicks yeah. on a sold out night When the curtains close And the Broadway streets are alive hey. I need your heartbeat close Don't you ever leave me And I breathe your air When I land in another city And I Born and raised 
days I was godsend. I used to hit them courts, y'all didn't prospect. Take them long walks on my time spin. Just a kid with that empire, stay the mindset. Kick flipping off a blind deck, dipping from the New York City's finest. Yeah, said I've been up on my New York shit. Walking down the block with my New York bitch. I can never leave my city, ain't nothing like it. Even if I do, though, I can never hide it. Top down on the west side when I'm driving. East side be the only side of the